You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Today, the Department of Justice, joined by eight states, filed a civil antitrust lawsuit in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia against Google. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced on Tuesday that the Justice Department is suing Google for antitrust violations, accusing the search giant of using its dominant position in the online ad industry to box out competitors. Google has engaged in exclusionary conduct to severely weaken, if not destroy, competition in the ad tech industry. It's a high-stakes attempt to break up Google's ad tech business, one of the few times the government has called for the breakup of a major company. In response, Google said the lawsuit attempts to pick winners and losers in the highly competitive advertising technology sector. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Jen, tell us a little about the government's case against Google. So the government's case is actually very much like an ongoing case that's already been in litigation for a couple of years now that was brought by a group of states led by Texas. And both of these lawsuits cover what they call the ad tech stack. And the ad tech stack is a series of products that are used basically by advertisers and by publishers for placing advertisements online when somebody opens up a website. You know, we don't know it. We open a website and we see all these advertisements. But there is this complex series of transactions that happen to place that ad there and to figure out what ad to place depending on who the user is. And there are tools on the publisher side and there are tools on the advertiser side that they use. And then there's an exchange where they kind of come together to auction on the space and the ads that are available. And so the allegation here is that Google has slowly bought in to each of these tools all the way across that chain. And at this point, have dominance, you know, all the way across from publisher to advertiser. And they did it by buying products and then also by engaging in anti-competitive conduct that kind of blocked out the rivals that were out there that were able to compete. And they now have dominance across this whole chain of products. The complaint says, and this was from the words of one of Google's own advertising executives, the analogy would be if Goldman or Citibank owned the New York Stock Exchange. Right, exactly. It looks like a very big conflict of interest on its face. You know, they have both ends. They can control everything that occurs, and they have dominance in each piece of it, right? So they can affect where these ads go. They can preference themselves because they themselves have ad space and are advertisers. 
And then they can also extract a lot of money out of advertisers and publishers because they don't really have competition. And if these publishers and advertisers want to meet up and place these ads in the best places and the publishers want to sell their space, they have to use these Google tools, have no choice but to pay these high fees, essentially. So Google has argued different times that its ad business is not a monopoly because it has to compete with Meta, Amazon, Comcast, and others. And its share of the digital ad revenue market has dropped from 36.7% in 2016 to 28.8% last year, according to Insider Intelligence. So does that Mm -hmm. show that there is some competition? Well, that is Google sort of characterizing things differently than the Department of Justice is and the the states are. You know, they're looking generally and broadly at advertising on the Internet. But what the Department of Justice is looking at is something that's much more narrow. You know, they're looking specifically at each tool that's used by advertisers and publishers to place advertisements on space on websites. And so you have to take out, let's say, a Facebook because Facebook operates its own walled system. So in other words, if there's an ad exchange tool uh, that auctions on ads, that Facebook's not involved in that. Facebook isn't a competitor there. Facebook is negotiating itself with advertisers for placement on its own website, etc. So it's not in there. It may be a place where an advertiser can go, right, online to advertise, and it has space for those advertisements, but it's not competing with the Google products that are at issue in the complaint. So, you know, while Google may not be wrong about those assertions, they're just looking at the market differently than the Department of Justice is. This was mentioned at the press conference. The AG was asked, why are you duplicating this lawsuit by the Texas Attorney General and other states? So why are they duplicating? That happens a lot, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I would say there are a couple different reasons for it. I mean, the first reason is that they are an antitrust enforcer, and it doesn't mean they're going to sit back and rely on some other plaintiff to bring their case when they think that there's been anti-competitive conduct. They're going to bring their own case. They have their own evidence. They've done a long investigation, and they want to pursue that enforcement and not rely on somebody else. But I actually think there also might be another reason. The states, unlike the Department of Justice, are subject to consolidation of lawsuits where there are other similar lawsuits. And in the case of the the suit that was brought by Texas, they were consolidated with other lawsuits over the exact same thing that are brought as consumer class actions, one by advertisers and one by publishers. And they got consolidated and moved to a New York court. And by virtue of that, they were slowed down immensely. I mean, even for litigation, June, that litigation is going at a glacial pace. It's complex. There are a lot of issues there. The judge is taking it in tranches and in stages. And you're looking at a matter that probably I I doubt would get to trial any time before 2025. On the other hand, the Department of Justice doesn't have to consolidate. It can stay where it brought its suit in Virginia. And I suspect could probably get to trial on this before that other case gets to trial. This is one of the few times that the Justice Department has called for the breakup of a major company since it dismantled Bell in the 1980s. Why do you think they're doing that here? Well, I think if they view anti-competitive conduct to start at anti-competitive purchases, uh, in other words, 
Google tried to compete and couldn't and instead went out and started buying up competitors and sort of hoovering up all of the different products that were in the space in order to dominate it, that that in itself, that the acquisition activity in and of itself is part of the anti-competitive conduct here. And if that is the case, then the remedy to seek is to sell off some of these illegally acquired technologies. You know, it would be different if if a company was bought for pro-competitive reasons, let's say, but once it was bought, the company developed into a monopoly, which wouldn't be illegal, but then behaved badly and engaged in, in exclusionary tactics with that monopoly to then keep out rivals. I think that's a little bit different. But here they say just buying DoubleClick, let's say, and AdMob and some of the other pieces of this puzzle that they bought, those in itself were anti-competitive, maybe should have been stopped by the agency at the time of the acquisition, but weren't. And now we need to seek to have them sold off. It's, it's very much like the FTC's lawsuit against Facebook right now, where it's seeking the divestiture of either WhatsApp or Instagram or both. This represents the Biden administration's first major case challenging one of the largest tech companies. And Attorney General Garland said, no matter the industry, no matter the company, the Justice Department will vigorously enforce our antitrust laws. How important is this lawsuit to the Justice Department? I think it's quite important. I would say also that it's existing lawsuit against Alphabet uh, related to Google search which it brought a few years ago. I mean, we'll go to trial in September of this year, at least it's set to at this moment. It's also very important. I mean, they very much mirror the really huge sort of seminal antitrust, monopolization antitrust case against Microsoft, which was generally successful. And I think they're very important cases because since Microsoft, there have been very few big monopolization suits brought, either by the FTC or the Department of Justice. I think critics would say that they pretty much just dropped that kind of enforcement and that we have a problem now because for the last 10 years, the FTC and DOJ have sat around and allowed these big tech platforms just to buy up the industries that they're in, just buy up small competitors right and left to rise to a position of dominance and now need to do something about it. And I think that's what they're trying to do here now with this Google case and also the one that they're pursuing over Google search. And I think they're very important cases for them. Yeah, I think they really tried to pump up this case at the press conference, called it a landmark case. And also Vanita Gupta, the Associate Attorney General, went through a list of the different accomplishments in antitrust that the Justice Department has under, you know, the the Biden administration. So Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's somewhat in response to a July, I guess it was now in 2021, executive order by President Biden that basically encouraged all of the agencies in the federal government to, to sort of ramp up to try to increase competition in the marketplace. And so they're basically saying, look, that's what we've done. We're responding to your executive order. We're working really hard. We've accomplished a lot to try to you know, follow our mission and ramp up competition in the marketplace. And this is a big piece of it. And I think this is an important case, too, because it will be incredibly difficult for them to actually win and achieve a breakup order here. You know, they came close to it with Microsoft, but that was overturned on appeal. And the Department of Justice ultimately settled. Pieces of the liability portion were overturned on appeal. And then the appellate court urged them to rethink what the remedy was because the district court did say the breakup was the appropriate remedy. And then the Department of Justice 
ended up settling with Microsoft, but many think that the settlement was actually quite useful and did increase competition in the marketplace. And so this is a big risk. They are taking a stab. They're trying again. I think their goal will be to try to force Google to divest some of these products. Do you think that this will actually go to trial or there'll be a settlement? You know, it's so early to predict something like that because oftentimes settlements come about because of the direction that the litigation is going in. You know, reading the court, reading some of the conferences, and we haven't gotten anywhere near there yet with just a complaint. You know, my guess is that the Department of Justice is very interested in trying this case. And I think, at least for now, uh, unless they see they get a very hostile judge, for now, it would be hard to see how they'd reach a settlement because I'm not sure the DOJ would want any kind of a settlement that's short of some divestment. And I really doubt Google would agree to that. Jen, let's turn now to another antitrust issue that online ticket buyers should be able to relate to. Just say no Taylor Swift fans, known as Swifties, rallied outside the U.S. Capitol on Tuesday as the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing about what went wrong during the pre-sale for Swift tickets late last year. Millions of fans were left in virtual queues or denied tickets altogether, and Ticketmaster had to shut down the pre-sale. There were complaints that the merger of Live Nation, an events company, with Ticketmaster means that it controls event production as well as ticket sales. Here's Jack Grotzinger, the CEO of SeatGeek, a rival ticket platform. It is no mystery why no other company has significantly penetrated the primary ticketing market. Major venues in the U.S. know that if they move their primary ticketing business from Ticketmaster, they risk losing revenue they earn from Live Nation concerts. But the president and CFO of Live Nation, Joe Berktold, blamed bots who buy up tickets in large quantities for the pre-sale fiasco. We knew bots would attack that on sale and planned accordingly. We were then hit with three times the amount of bot traffic that we'd ever experienced. And for the first time in 400 verified fan on sales, they came after our verified fan password servers as well. Jen, give us the background here. You know, there have been complaints about Live Nation for years. I mean, essentially ever since Live Nation acquired Ticketmaster, which vertically integrated the company. It, It was a promoter and now it was also a ticket seller. And across the board, there have been complaints about abuse of that position. And at the time that Live Nation acquired Ticketmaster, it did enter into a consent order, basically promising to behave fairly and not to discriminate against other ticket sellers that are selling tickets for concerts and events that it's promoting. Well, the Department of Justice, lo and behold, found that it wasn't abiding by those terms and went after Live Nation just a couple years ago again, saying, hey, you violated these terms. And what they did is they extended the consent order and they kind of beefed up some of the terms. And now people are saying, hey, they're still not abiding by these terms. And the problem at the core of it was you, the Department of Justice, allowed Live Nation to buy Ticketmaster. And that's just a big conflict of interest. And it really harms and forecloses other rival ticket sellers. And that's a problem. And there was this big snafu with selling Taylor Swift tickets for her upcoming tour. And a lot of people say, hey, That's because there's no competition and the systems aren't good enough because Live Nation, they have no incentive to innovate. They have no incentive to try to keep bots out. They have no incentive to have the best quality technology here so this process can go smoothly. So this is just an example of why their dominance is a bad thing. Is the Justice Department doing anything about this? Now, we do understand from news that the DOJ has still another investigation at this point of Live Nation ongoing. 
and that that had started before the whole Taylor Swift fiasco. But, you know, Congress is upset about this, too. So the Senate Judiciary Committee had a hearing and brought in quite a few people to testify, one from Live Nation. The rest were all various people involved in the industry, promoters. Actually, somebody from a band was there speaking about the troubles that they have and the small piece of the ticket price that they actually get, because I think they want to draw attention to this. What can Congress do besides hold hearings? I mean, Congress can't really do very much, but at least what these hearings do is bring out information that's useful for the Department of Justice and it also um, validates what the Department of Justice is doing if they continue to pursue the investigation and then ultimately decide to bring a lawsuit. Because, June, I think at this point, they have already failed to abide by the consent order once. If it's found that they failed to abide by those terms a second time, I don't think there's going to be a third chance. The third chance will be a lawsuit. And that lawsuit, given this Department of Justice, could be yet another one where they seek the breakup of a company. They could seek to force them to sell Ticketmaster. I think anyone who's tried to buy tickets online and gets stuck in one of those queues can relate to this. Absolutely. Um, Thanks so much, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the Supreme Court's first decision of the term is a blow to veterans. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Texas is leading another lawsuit against the Biden administration over immigration policy. Texas and 20 other Republican-led states are suing over a change in immigration policy that would turn away more migrants but still allow 360,000 people to legally enter each year from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. The lawsuit accuses the Biden administration of arbitrarily creating recent changes and overstepping its authority. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, we've talked about this parole program before, but why don't you give us a little recap of what it is? So the Biden administration decided recently that because the border has become very, very difficult to manage, that they would employ a new carrot and stick approach to the border. The stick part being that if you try to enter illegally in between the ports of entry, meaning you try to cross the border illegally, what would happen to that person 
is they would immediately be subject to Title 42 expulsion from the United States. But because that approach was deemed draconian by a lot of the folks on the Democratic side of the aisle, the idea is it would be combined with carrots, which is this parole program, which was to say, look, we're going to allow about 360,000 people per year, 30,000 people per month, to come in legally from the basic four countries where we're getting a lot of the traffic right now, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti. And that way, it's not that we're rejecting everybody, but we're asking them to come through this legal manner that lessens the burden on our ports of entry. So now the state of Texas and others are suing over this program, and they say it's you know, the administration has created a kind of visa program without approval from Congress, without legislation. Tell us more about the suit. So the lawsuit is basically saying that the way the parole authority works and what parole is, is it's an authority that Congress has conferred upon the president of the United States, whoever's president at that time, to admit any foreign national if there is what's either called a compelling humanitarian interest or a significant public benefit for letting that person in. So in the history of the United States, this program had been used many times for programmatic purposes with Cubans, with Vietnam, Cambodia during the Vietnam War. It had been used many, many times. But in the 1980s, that program got substituted with what we now know as the refugee program. So the refugee program is the program that Congress intends the president to use on an annual planned basis to say, we're going to take this many refugees from this place, this many from this place, et cetera. And what parole is, is it's a program that was changed, so it would be just for one person at a time. So, for instance, somebody is having cancer treatment, and their mother has been denied visas for, you know, because they think the mother's going to immigrate to the United States so they can't get a visitor visa, but now they say, look, I need my mother in because I'm dying, and please let her visit me while I'm having cancer treatment or something. And you would parole the mother into the United States in that situation. Things like that. And so the point that the states are making is you have to keep that on a one-on-one basis that you can't create a memo that basically creates a criteria where people who meet that criteria would be able to apply for a parole program They think that exceeds the bounds of what Congress created in this new parole framework in the statute. Does it sound like they're right? Because it sounds like something that Congress should be involved in. I think the issue is going to be twofold. So number one, I think ordinarily you would have a very close 50-50 case on this. Because the argument that the Biden administration is going to make is, well, This is a significant public benefit to do a program like this because we have 2 million people crossing our border. And if we can end that by creating a legal flow to siphon this off, that's going to be a massive victory for all of us. So they're going to try to make that argument. The question is going to be how deferential the courts will be. And the courts have not been very deferential in the last few years to the president. So that's going to be one problem. But the second problem is this new, and I'm sure... You keep talking about it on your show. People keep talking about it, this major questions doctrine that came out recently in the Supreme Court from the climate change cases, which is basically saying, look, whenever there's any major change 
that's done via administrative action, then the question is, did Congress explicitly allow you to do that? And so that's going to be sort of another issue that may come up here that may make it harder for the administration to win long term. I do think it will be enjoined very quickly at the district court level because, you know, they filed it in a location that tends to lead toward that. And I do think the Fifth Circuit will probably keep the program enjoined. And then the question is, will the Supreme Court allow this program to actually get implemented? All indications are when it was used with the Ukrainians is that the program does help at the border. So is Texas suing, you think, just to sue or is there a moral or legal point? I mean, this is sort of the $64,000 question, which is, look, there are certainly some arguments that can be made on the inflammatory side about, well, why didn't you sue when we did this for Ukrainians? Are you suggesting something about that you were okay with it with one type of population and you're not okay with it with another type of population? There are certainly arguments that people will raise in that regard. And there's other arguments about, hey, look, why are the states suing? Are they cutting off their nose to spite their face? Because since we know these programs have a track record of success, of channeling people toward legal immigration and getting them off the border, why would they sue? Those are fair questions and criticisms. You know, I'm not here to launch them or not launch them, just to introduce them to your viewers and let them make their decisions. And so it's unclear policy-wise why this would be objected to since it would relieve pressure on the Texas border. But nevertheless, they're just trying to say perhaps that even if this is relieving pressure, they just object to 360,000 people being allowed legally into the United States that wouldn't have been allowed legally, you know, a few months ago. Let me ask you about one allegation. They say it unlawfully creates a de facto pathway to citizenship. Does it do that? Well, what happens is it could, in sort of a Rube Goldberg machination, for a few of the people in the program. And you might say, well, what do I mean by this? Well, what happens is there's a lot of people who, if they don't have an entryway into the United States, then they can't get a green card. So if you cross the border illegally, you can't get a green card, even if you marry a U.S. citizen or you have some other citizen relative, like a sibling or a parent that could petition for you. But if there are people who meet these circumstances, that they have a relative that is able to petition for them under a normal green card system, and the only barrier to entry so far has been that they can't get paroled into the United States, then this parole in that small subset of cases could lead to a path to citizenship. But it's not gonna be all the 360,000 people But there will be some number, I don't know what the percentage will be, that would become green card holders and eventually U.S. citizens because of this program that wouldn't have otherwise had that. So is that number going to be one? I think it'll be more than one. Will it be all 360,000? I think it'll be much less than that. But it'll be some number in between. And the question is, you know, if people are going to talk about public benefits and other things like that to try to get standing in the courts, then the question is, is that all too speculative for the courts to take into account? Or can the courts take into account this kind of thing where there's a probability you can easily make the causal link, but you have no way to predict how many people will be in this group? 
I want to turn to another immigration issue, and that's there are these mass tech layoffs, and it's leaving hundreds of workers or maybe more that are living in the U.S. on the H-1B visas, scrambling for jobs. Explain the H-1B visa. The H-1B visa is the primary visa mechanism for skilled workers to enter the United States to work. It's a cop visa, so there's only 65000 per year, plus an additional 20000 for people with master's degrees. And so there's always a lottery every year because there's about 500,000 people who want these visas. And only about 85,000, as I said, get them in total. And so what happens is if you win the lottery and you get these visas, you have to work in a skilled occupation for an employer who is giving you this kind of skilled work. And they are visas that last for two terms of three years. So the most you can be on H-1B status is six years total. And then you either have to go home or an employer has to petition for you for a green card, which then extends your stay until that green card adjudication continues or is decided. And so now one of the problems is that people are on these visas to work at these tech companies. And even worse, if you're from India, the problem is you could be in a backlog waiting for a green card for up to 30, 40 years because the way our green card system works is that we don't have a first-come, first-served green card system. We divide it up per country. And so we say of all the green card slots, people from one country can only get 7% of the slots. And so India, which has 1.4 billion people, is limited to the same 14,000 green card employment slots that Monaco is limited to. And so from that standpoint, the Indians have long, long lines And so if they get laid off anywhere in this 40-year line, suddenly they lose their status, their spouse loses their status, their kids lose their status, and it becomes this humanitarian nightmare. So they have only 60 days to find another job. Is that a firm 60 days? So here's what happens. When you are on H-1B visa and you lose your job, another employer can petition for you if you meet the criteria to also have H-1B status at that employer. Now, it has to get approved at the end of the day in order for you to stay. So they'll have to show that this is a legitimate employer giving you legitimate skilled work, et cetera. And so if it gets approved, then you're fine. Then your problem has been solved. If it does not get approved, then the question is, well, what is the administration going to do? Is it going to just allow people to remain here illegally? Is it going to give people some other status like deferred action for them to remain here and then perhaps if they can find an H-1B job later, retroactively approve it? It's called nunc pro tunc approval so that the approval goes back to where if it had been approved prior to that, they could have kept their status. They have that discretion to do that. And so all of those decisions are being debated in the administration, but that's the issue. And then, you know, people may decide, because this is a totally different group than the group that comes without status, that they don't want to live in the United States without status. So that's too scary, too uncertain. They don't want to drive without a driver's license, because that's not what these folks were doing. These folks were making hundreds of thousands of dollars. They had driver's licenses. They had, you know, bank accounts and houses and things like this. 
And that group may not want to live even one day undocumented in the United States. And so what happens there is you could see a lot of people selling their house or moving to Canada or, you know, doing something like that in that situation. And so if this problem becomes a protracted problem where people really can't change employers, you might start seeing some of that behavior. Just to take the personal element out of it for a moment, the reason for these visas are that it's supposed to be a program that fills an area where there's a shortage of Americans to work, science, technology. Correct. But now that there have been all these layoffs and a lot of Americans are laid off, should this program be in effect at the numbers that it is? Well, so this is a very interesting point about which visa does what. So the employment-based green card has a test where you have to show an American worker is not available in order to get that green card. The H-1B visa actually doesn't have that test. The employer is not required to prove that American worker couldn't be found before they hire a foreign worker. They just have to prove that the foreign worker is getting all of the same wages and benefits that an American would be paid for that job. The other interesting point is that even though these layoffs are occurring, they're occurring within a backdrop of relatively low unemployment for skilled occupations. And so at the end of the day, right now, at least anecdotally from my world of clients, but also from the people I talk to, A, a lot of the layoffs that are occurring are dispersed much more toward the group that's not really the H-1B holding group. There are some people being laid off, but not in large numbers. But even to the extent that those folks are being laid off, at the moment, there are other places for them to go because of the low unemployment rate in the skilled workforce. If this problem were to start to pick up where it's actually we're seeing an inversion from what we have now. Right now we have more job openings than unemployed people in these skilled sectors. But if it inverts, where you start having more unemployment and less job opening in the skilled sectors, then the kinds of concerns you're talking about certainly can be raised. And look, that's why during the Trump administration, he actually, during the COVID period, said this and put a travel ban on H-1B holders and said no more H-1B visas to be issued during COVID because we, A, COVID, but B, we're worried about the economic loss of jobs and now's not the time to let people in. Would the Biden administration ever do this? Probably not, but it's certainly a tool that now, since President Trump has used it, has raised the possibility that any president could use it in a situation like this. And employers who want to hire an H-1B visa holder, it costs more than hiring a, a U.S. citizen for the job? Well, so here's the question. There's a lot of criticism on that end. Well, maybe employers are only hiring foreign workers to save wages. But forgetting about what it costs right now. So right now it costs, in fees, it costs about $5,000 just in government filing fees to hire an H-1B worker. And that's not even paying a lawyer yet. So, you know, it could be between fifteen dollars and $20,000 right now. USCIS is basically doubling that amount upcoming with their new fee rules. So it may end up being $30,000 to bring in an H-1B worker into the United States when this is all said and done, you know, when this new fee schedule gets put in very soon. And so the idea that you'd hire an H-1B to undercut an American starts to become much more 
unsubstantiated at that kind of feed level. And what you really see happening is employers basically doing what the National Basketball Association or the National Hockey League is doing, which is what they're just saying is, look, we don't view this marketplace as America or global or anything else. Just we want the best people. And if we've determined that X person is the best person, but they don't happen to be a U.S. citizen, we just want to bring them in, period. And it's not really viewed by the wage issue. It's more viewed by them just deciding that they want to bring in X or Y person because that's the person they want on their team. And some of these workers are making $100,000, $200,000. There's some people making $600,000 on H-1B visa. It just depends what type of work they're doing and in what type of company. And there's a lot of folks that were making even that kind of money. That's not the average, but, but I certainly know of some clients making that amount of money. And what it just comes down to is the marketplace and employers in a lot of these markets, they've become very talent sensitive, just like a sports league is. And so you want that top level of talent because it could actually make the difference between a product being more successful and less successful. Thanks so much for being on the show, Leon. That's immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.